0: You are listening to The History of Religions and Their Gods, hosted by yours truly, the Skeptical Ghost Heathen. Going to need some petroleum jelly and a hard hat for this one, baby. And welcome back to the show, the history of religions, and of course, their gods. And I am your host, the skeptical ghost heathen. And I hope that you're all still enjoying this little mini-series of mine. At least the download count says that you are. But this series is based on Dennis McDonald's, the Homeric Epic, and the Gospel of Mark. As well as Stephen Commando's, the Gospel of Mark and the Jewish-Roman War of 66 to 70. Now in this episode, which I'm calling Chapter 9... I want to discuss one of Mark's strangest, well, one of many strange and bizarre stories in his gospel, the demon of Gerasene, where Jesus removes an evil spirit, or or spirits in the plural form, from a man that drowns them in the sea in the form of a herd of swine. Now in this episode, I'm going to make the connection to both the Odyssey as well as the Jewish war by Josephus. So, if you're ready to do this thing, you guys, put on your seatbelts and strap down your helmets or your hard hats because it's going to be a bumpy ride from here on out. Picking up where we left off in the last episode, or chapter if you prefer, immediately after our hero, Jesus Christ, calms the storm with just a couple of small words and goes back to sleep in his boat, his boat arrives at the other side of the sea, or lake in actuality, where he runs into the garrison demoniac. When typically told, when an exorcism is performed, it brings the exorcist and the demoniac into contact, and then lets the exorcist and the reader learn of the victim's condition, such as deafness or convulsions or antisocial behavior, or perhaps some pre-natural cognitive powers as seen in Mark one twenty four, when the demoniac says to Jesus, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Hey, I know who you are. Because in Homeric tradition, deities and demons can identify each other, when in disguise or not. But I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. The exorcist then rebukes the demon or demons and demands that they leave the person at once. And often the exorcist would send the evil spirit or demons into the wilderness or the sea or perhaps even another living host. The demon may may dramatize its exit by producing some violent effect, perhaps some exploitive such as, your mother sucks cocks in hell, or some shit like that, right? Excuse me if your little kids are listening to this, but it's a 1970s movie. And then the crowd witnessing the event would be amazed at the exorcist powers over the demon. Basically, anyone who can raise the dead or scare away a demon is literally the shit when it comes to this type of thing, especially in literature that was being produced at the time. Now, being mindful about how we already know how this author for Mark writes, fulfilling two narratives, one applying to Homer and Greek values, while the other shaming zealot Jews by either creating allusions to the Septuagint and or Josephus' Jewish wars. But each of these elements that we just discussed about exorcists and demons all get utilized and appear in Mark chapter 5 verses 1 through 20. Now Mark here, he has this Jesus now just coincidentally run into a demoniac whose violence Mark narrates in great detail. The demon then recognizes Jesus and his amazing powers and then asks him for mercy. What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? Nice work there, Mark, by the way. I adjure you, do not torment me. Then, predictably, Jesus tells the demon to get out. Or get out. Like the Amityville Horror, right? With just as few and short words as he used to calm the belligerent storm. Just as we discussed a little while earlier in the narrative. Now Mark then decides to send the demon, actually demons, because when Jesus asked who the demon was, they replied, we are legion, which incidentally is a small group of rebels, small group of fighters, too large to be an army and too big to be a gang. So it's not just the one demon. It's an entire legion. That exists in the man. And enters into a herd of nearby swine. Two thousand I believe. That in turn. Rush into the sea where they all drowned. And that's it of them. That's all we get. I guess. Now that little story. Will make a little bit more sense to us. When we read about the two thousand zealots. Who are forced off the cliff. And drowned into the sea. But in this tale the local citizens see the demoniac sitting there clothed and in his right mind, the very man who had the legion of demons, and they were afraid. Now, even though most of Mark's account here seems to derive from other ancient and typical exorcism stories, most of it is so atypical, though, that many scholars have just considered it as an anomaly, even a divergent genre of some sort. Because in the first place of exorcism stories in the New Testament, only this one, and its parallels in Matthew and Luke, begin with the sea voyage. Second, no exorcism in the New Testament contains a more graphic description of a demoniac's antisocial behavior. Because Mark says that he was unrestrainable and a threat to civilized societies. And just as a side note, Josephus would often say this about the rebel leaders, John Giscala and Simon Bargioris. And third, Jesus' order that the demons come out of the man at first had no real apparent effect, like the magic wasn't there. Now perhaps we can parallel this with Titus, the son of Vespasian, who is standing in the center of the ruins, which were once the holy temple court, calling for the rebel leaders to come out of hiding which they did eventually come out of a cave. Now the demons in Mark's story only departed after negotiating on more favorable terms. Now in Wars of the Jews, John Giscala, well he went off to Rome for a life prison sentence. While Simon Bargioris was escorted back to Rome with his hands girded and tethered to Titus's horse. All the way back to Rome. Now Simon, He was stoned to death in public. Now, back to the story. Now, fourth, when Jesus asked the demon what his name was, which is the only time there was a request for the demon's name in the New Testament, well, he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. Now, the demon obviously did not give Jesus his real name, but rather an alias that would represent the multitude of inhabiting demons inside the man's body. Now evidently, this legion represented about 2,000, if each one took a pig. One could propose that the man in the story represented John Gascala, whose 2,000 fighters and warriors of the Jews were forced off a cliff by the Romans and fell into the Sea of Galilee, where they ultimately drowned. Additionally, this madman went off to tell everyone in the city what wonderful things Jesus had just done for him. While in Wars of the Jews, John the Josepha Josephus says, went off to prison for life where he wrote about what happened during the War of 66 to 70 between the Romans and the Jews. Now, fifth, even though Jesus is allowing the demons to possess other hosts, find analogies in other ancient tales of exorcisms. However, Mark's odd selection of a huge herd of grazing pigs is a standalone it's unique but if we were to use the josephan method here that would make sense because swine was often synonymous with demons and devils and josephus frequently referred to the rebellious jews as demons or pigs which ties this event up nicely from the war now six No other exorcisms contain an an extended epilogue involving the local town folk, who, despite the newly won sanity of the outcast, perhaps John Gascala, detests the exorcists and demands him to leave at once or forever go to prison in Rome, right? Let that sink in a little bit. Now, spectators of the exorcism in these types of stories usually celebrate, right? But for whatever reason, this author for Mark here, he's got a different agenda, doesn't he? Now, seventh, exorcisms typically do not contain requests of demoniacs to follow the exorcist. But Mark instead, uncharacteristically, refused to take the demoniac along with him. Instead, he told the man to go home and announce what the Lord, or Titus, had done for him. Even though such announcements would have seemed to breach Jesus' wall of secrecy in Mark, which Mark has been enforcing all along from the very beginning, right? Teaching in parables. Keep it all quiet. Keep it on the down low. Don't tell about my exorcisms or healing anybody. But I believe that this author wanted to tie this allusion to the Sakari leaders by alluding to the imprisonment and living to write his story about how Titus had saved him. Last but not least, eight. This is the only exorcism found in the New Testament that ends with the sea voyage. So these deviations from the traditional garden variety exorcisms They kind of demand some sort of explanation. And there are several, as we just discussed through the eighth point. But the Homeric explanations are, in fact, the legion. Now, some interpreters insist that these anomalies must point to a real historical event. While others contend that the origins of the story had to do with a popular folk tale or legend about another exorcist altogether. And others suggest that a dramatic event later became embellished with legendary and novelistic elements and have proposed complex histories of transmission. But scholars frequently argue that the story as we now have it today, it expresses in narrative the concerns of Isaiah 65 according to the Greek Septuagint. And in support of this position it's found in Romans 10, 20-21, where Paul basically quotes from the beginning of this chapter, and context of legitimizing his mission to go out and spread the word of his Jesus to all the Gentiles. Even if Isaiah 65 had influenced Mark's choice of vocabulary and a Gentile setting for his story, this influence can account for only one of the deviations from the typical exorcism identified earlier, namely the selection of a herd of swine to host his demons. Now, this section of Isaiah 65, and you should go ahead and read it, is the second section of the book of Isaiah by a completely different author from Isaiah 1. Now, this author writes during the Antiochian period of 200 to 150 BCE. And it's a tale of faith for the Jews who are oppressed by their new overlords. The Syrian Greeks, who took over the Holy Temple, installed their own leadership team, Priests and Hellenized it, while discontinuing and forbidding any Jewish traditions that took place at the temple beforehand, right? Now this action, as you can imagine, caused much grief among the Jews living in Judea at the time. Although the elite thrived and did very well working with the Greeks, the Gentiles. But these authors will only condemn those who betrayed the Lord. Laugh out loud. But this is the connection to the Gentiles and the Jews and the diet of the Greeks that didn't deem pork as forbidden like the Jewish authors did. Which is probably why they even wrote that in the first place. Because when these Jewish writers didn't like something or somebody, they would alienate them, demonize them, and have their Lord destroy them at once. So this model doesn't work and isn't a problem making all eight points in an imitation for both Homer and Jewish wars. In fact, if one were to go looking for a Homeric model in Mark's story, well, one might begin with Circe, the witch in the Homeric story, who turned Odysseus' soldiers into what? Swine. Odysseus and his crew sailed to her island, and there they disembarked. Just as Jesus and the Twelve sailed to the island of the Gerasenes, and disembarked. At the end of both stories, the hero and the crew sail on to other adventures. Keep in mind, Mark is the only one out of the canon to do this, by the way. Odysseus sent 23 of his crew to investigate what the source of smoke was about in the near distance from off of his ship. And there they discovered Circe's home. And they devoured her piggy-producing drug, a drug that turns people into pigs except for Eurylochus, do you remember we talked about him earlier, who escaped to report the tragedy to Odysseus. Armed by the root molly, which was supplied by Hermes, the hero who was unaffected by the swine drug and drew his sword in order to persuade the witch to transform the swine back into his damned soldiers. Now her reply seems a lot like the response to Jesus from the demoniac. Now, let's compare the Odyssey, Book 10, pages 343 and 330 to 333 to Mark's chapter 5, verses 6 to 8. But she, with a loud cry, ran beneath and clasped my knees, and beseeching me, with wailing, addressed me with winged words, Who are you among men, and from where? Now, in Mark, we get this. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and knelt before him, and crying with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? Then in the Odyssey we get this, Surely you are Odysseus, the man of many devices, who Argyphantus, the golden wand, always said to me would come here on his way home from Troy with his swift, black ship. No, Come, put your sword away in its sheath. And then in Mark, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he said to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. So to Mark, keep in mind, unclean spirits were also synonymous with swine and heavily related to the Sakari movement, the zealots, the revolutionaries. To Mark, although a Romano-Jew, the Jews in his tale were all unclean spirits and devils. Now in both of these scenarios, the opponent runs to the hero, falls before him, and in a loud voice, asks him a question in supplication, and identifies him by name with an appropriate predicate. Now the witch, Circe, knows the stranger to be the hero in the story, Odysseus, that is, thanks to the prophecy from Hermes, where the demoniac also knows the stranger to be Mark's hero, Jesus, thanks to the supernatural perception of the inhabiting demons. Now, Circe asks Odysseus to sheath his sword, to put it away, where the Gerasene asks Jesus to not harm him. Now, Mark's borrowing from Homer may also explain why Jesus' is first attempt to exercise the demon was anachronistic, meaning outdated and ineffective, because the demon requested that Jesus not harm him prior to the reader learning that Jesus had commanded the demon to leave in the first place. More chronological presentation would locate Jesus' ordering the demon to leave before the demon's appeal for mercy. Now, the first redactor of Mark's story here, being Matthew, he completely avoided Mark's difficulty simply by omitting Jesus' ineffective and outdated command to the demon. Now, why? Well, there's a couple schools of thought here. The author for Matthew, probably writing five to ten years later, well, he may have recognized all of the clever allusions to Homer's epic and made efforts to cut them out in order to realize to realize the Jesus story as much as possible, which also included a ridiculous nativity story. It makes me wonder if there were several concerned, high-profile people in the church's organization, after Paul had died, the fall of the temple, that were concerned that the congregants were interpreting Mark's gospel as only allegory and not literal, such as other humanizing stories of like Osiris and Romulus. This would also explain why there's so much, you better believe. You better accept Jesus. Jesus is the only way. He really died for you. This all comes from Mark's redactors, as well as letters from church fathers, such as Ignatius, who goes out of his way explaining that Jesus really was crucified, that Jesus really did die. and and that Jesus really did rise again from the dead. This reinforcement should make us think that between Paul and Mark's communities, between 30 and 80 CE, Jesus was only known through scripture and allegorical stories. That's why all of the allusions to Homer were removed, omitted, And too late to change Mark, as it was already in circulation for a decade. But that also explains why Athanasius, the bishop of Antioch, placed Mark after Matthew in his canon. Now the parallel in the epic, on the other hand, well it makes perfect sense. Because Circe knew that Odysseus meant to mess her up. He meant to do her harm. He meant to open up a can of epic whoopass on her, as he had drawn out his huge sword and lunged at her with it. Now, the author for Mark seems to have imitated or even mimicked Circe's question to Odysseus' identity, followed by a request not to harm, but then recognized that the demoniac had insufficient reason to suspect that Jesus might torment him. So Mark backtracked and wrote that Jesus had already told the demons to come out of the man. Now to this point, Mark has his Jesus play a very similar role to that of Odysseus. But in typical Markan fashion, later on in the story, Jesus starts to look more and more like Circe, the witch. And the demoniac starts to resemble Odysseus. Why? Why? Because Mark loves reversal of expectations. It's the old switcheroo. Now here's an example of what I mean by that. Because Circe invites Odysseus to join her in her bed. But first, he adjured her to not harm him. I'll get in bed with you, but don't you be hurting me. No strap-ons or any shit like that. Now Odysseus says, swear to me a mighty oath that you will not plot against me any fresh mischief to my hurt. So I spoke, and she at once swore the oath to me to do no harm, as I bade her. Go to bed with her, right? But when she had sworn and made a, made an end of the oath, then I went up to the beautiful bed with Cersei. Now in Mark's story, It is the demoniac who requires an oath, saying, I adjure you by God, do not torture me. Now Circe turned the swine back into soldiers, though later they would all fall into the sea and drown. Now, in comparison, Jesus, on the other hand, only sent the legion, or the soldiers, into the swine and then drowned them in the Sea of Galilee. So if Mark modeled his story after Homer's Circe, it might also account for several other peculiarities, such as Jesus' sailing to and from the sight. The selection of swine as the new host for the demons, and of course, their designation as a legion. Because Odysseus' companions were all, in fact, soldiers, or a legion, or in Mark's mind, absolutely a legion just like in the Wars of the Jews. It would also explain the ineffectiveness of the initial exorcism. This author did this to explain why the demoniac asked for mercy. Now, with respect to Mark's dualistic writing style, we should also look at Book 4, as well as 7, of Josephus' Jewish Wars, where he details the uprising of the Sicarii and their leaders, John Gascala. Now, Josephus explains that he rose to power because of his tyranny, threatening families and killing those who refused to join him in his war with the Romans, or against the Romans. There is a battle scene that does take place at Gerasene, near the Sea of Galilee, where a small legion like of soldiers were chased off a cliff by the Romans on horseback and spears and bows and arrows and their swords. They were forced to retreat, to run backwards off the cliff, where evidently they did in fact all drown. But the words that Josephus used is what makes it interesting, as they ran into the sea like the wildest of beasts, using the same Greek as Mark, whose swine run into the sea like the wildest of beasts and drown. More than likely, our evangelist was painting a picture of John Giscala as the demon in the cave who forced those 2,000 men and boys to fight and ultimately die at the hands of the Romans. Which in some sense means that Mark may have then replaced Vespasian with his Jesus. At least in this episode, as the one who did the chasing or the forcing and drowning. The other interesting aspect of this is the cave and the connection to John in general. Especially the way that Mark ends his story. Where the man who had the demons went to the city to go tell everyone what the Lord had done for him. As Titus waited in the temple ruins, John Giscala, as well as his cohort, Simon Bargioris, were hiding in the temple catacombs which are, in fact, caves. They tried to wear disguises, but the Romans were waiting for them and quickly identified them. As I said earlier, John was sent to prison where he wrote about the war, telling everyone what the Lord Titus had done for him, while Simon Bargurus was sent off to Rome to die. Now, once again, I can't say it enough. But this author for Mark is a genius, and he creates two unique illusions: One, to devalue the Greeks, and the other, to devalue the rebels. All in one little voyage across a lake. There can be very little doubt that the story about Circe and Odysseus was available to Mark. And likewise, being read in Christian homes, according to many scholars... The story was an ancient hit, as one can see from ancient text and art. And furthermore, the tale had many literary imitators like Mark. Apollonius Rhodus sent Medea and Jason to Circe to make amends. When they disembarked, well, they saw men whom she had turned into various types of beasts. Virgil wrote about it where he sent Aeneas' armada safely past Circe's island and its resident theriomorphs, which is a Greek term for wild beasts. The author Ovid depicted her island full of such monstrosities, and her turn yet another character into a wild beast. Petronius named one of his characters Circe, who predictably had a voracious sexual appetite and magical powers. Lucian, well he parodied Homer Circe in a so-called true story. And Apuleius made Circe his model for the witch Mero, whose magic turned people into animals. And then finally, according to the acts of Andrew, cannibals captured Matthias, gouged out his eyes, gave him drugs to make his mind like that of a wild beast. Even gave him fodder to to eat for thirty days of fattening before they ate him. Just like Odysseus, Andrew rescued his comrade and others from this predicament, and then safely sailed away. Now the author for Andrew clearly modeled his account after the story of Circe, and used it to fend off pagan criticism of Christian cannibals. This act was written somewhere around the same time as the Gospel, probably, of John, 2 Peter, and the the Book of Revelation. That's somewhere around 130 to 150 of the Common Era. And similarly, Christians were being accused of cannibalism because of their cultic ritual practices. Even Pliny thought so when interrogating them in his region. He thought they were a cannibalistic death cult. Now let's review and compare Homer to Mark. There is density here and the sequence here fits our criterion. Odysseus and his crew sailed to Iaea, and Circe turned his soldiers into swine. When Odysseus drew his sword on her, the witch ran to him, knelt, called him by name, and then begged for mercy. Now Jesus and his crew, while they sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, when Jesus ordered the demon to leave the man, the demonic ran at him, knelt before him, called him by name, and then begged for mercy. Odysseus required Circe to swear an oath that she would not harm him. Odysseus asked Circe to turn the swine back into her soldiers. The demon asked Jesus to swear that he would not harm him. The legion of demons, Asked to be sent into the nearby swine. And Jesus consented. But then sent all 2,000 swine into the sea to drown. Just like the 2,000 Jews who were forced to jump off a cliff into the sea and drown. Circe consented. But the crew would drown at sea later on in the story. Odysseus and his crew sailed away. Jesus and his crew sailed away. Now, several of these parallels are, in fact, really distinctive. There's the recognition of the stranger by name, the swearing of an oath to do no harm, and especially the turning of soldiers into swine who would ultimately drown at sea. Now, furthermore, Mark's emulation of the story makes the parallel interpretable. Why? Because Circe used her power to dehumanize 22 of Odysseus' crew, perhaps to eat them. Whereas Mark symbolically used Jesus' powers to dehumanize the Jews. Specifically, not just any Jew. John Gascala, and symbolically had 2,000 of his soldiers die in the sea at the hands of the Romans. But on the surface of the story, Jesus used his powers to cure and eradicate, more realistically, the demons. Mark in this scene is demonstrating that his Jesus, too, secretly denounces the Sicari movement, which is the entire motivation. Of this gospel. There are even closer Homeric parallels with the demoniac, however, appear in the story of Polymephus. Now, just like the story of Circe that we talked about a minute ago, Polymephus too was a permanent fixture of ancient literary culture, meaning a Christian household favorite. Greek art helps demonstrate this and gives testimony to its popularity and no version of the story was more famous than Homer's Cyclopeia, found in the Odyssey, Book Nine. So, not only was the book accessible to this author for Mark, but his imitation of it had several analogies. In fact, even Epicharmus, the Greek dramatist, as well as philosopher, parodied the tale in his Cyclops, where Cratinus an Athenian comedic poet burlesqued it in his Odysseus. Also Aristophanes, who's a, another Greek comic playwright, alluded to the story and the character in his Wasps. Euripides, he transvalued it in his Cyclops. Ovid recast it in the Metamorphosis. And Virgil used it to develop three separate characters. Polymephys himself, Cassus, and Mesonetius. Now each author who I just mentioned here, to pride as well as delight in competing with Homer's description of Polymephous' strength, barbarism, and his antisocial diet and behavior. All the characteristics of Mark's demoniac. Even Apollonius modeled four passages in his Argonautica after Polymephous, most obviously the giant Talos, Thucydides, and Apuleius as well, imitated Homer's Cyclopea. It seems that the post-Homeric tradition claimed that despite his savage appearance and his habits, the Cyclops ultimately won the love of the nymph, Galatea, which is a very popular topic for the literary jest. So well known was Homer's account that even Latin authors echoed it fully confident that their readers, too, would be able to catch and understand all the brilliant allusions. Exactly what Mark had hoped to do as well. So our author here for this and tale, he was eager to depict the Gerasene as a savage challenge to Jesus' powers. Seems to have imitated Homer's depiction of this paradigmatic primitive. The Cyclopea suggests solutions to many of the weird and odd peculiarities identified at the outset of the story. So let's take a closer look at these. Now Homer states that Odysseus' convoy of 12 ships sailed to reach the archipelago, which is a chain of small islands of the Cyclops. Now Mark's Jesus sailed with several boats, unlike the rest of the canonical and John Gospels, to the country of the Gerasenes. That is notably, predominantly a Greek Gentile territory. And I'm sure that's by design. Now in the Odyssey, Book 9, pages 101, and then 103 to 107, we're going to compare to Mark chapter 4, verses 1, as well as 35 to 36, and chapter 5, verse 1. I, Odysseus, bade the rest of my trusty comrades to embark with speed on the swift ships. So they went on board straight away and sat down upon the benches, and sitting well in order, smote the gray sea with their oars. Jesus got into the boat on the sea, and he sat there. He said to them, Let us go over to the other side. And leaving the crowds behind, they took him in the boat. Just as he was, other boats were with him. They came to the other side of the sea, the country of the Gerasenes. Odysseus traveled with the twelve boats. Thence we sailed on, grieved at heart, and we came to the land of the Cyclops. Both Jesus and Odysseus disembarked their ships. Now taken in isolation... These similarities require no literary dependence whatsoever. Because at this point, they instantiate common patterns that are found in most ancient sailing stories. Their significance lies in the common placement just before the encounters with the monsters in the caves. A cyclops in one story and a demoniac in the other. Now in Homer's tale... He depicts the Cyclops as barbaric shepherds in a primitive fantasy land where wild goats are innumerable and run free. And he also says that they are insolent and lawless. Know nothing of husbandry or commerce or even shipbuilding. Dwell on the peaks of the mountains and hollow caves and not only flaunt the conventions of ancient hospitality, but enjoy eating strangers along with their cheese and mutton chops. I don't know. I didn't write this shit. But that's the Odyssey, Book 9, 106-123. Now, Polymephys himself was a giant who was clothed in tremendous strength, a savage man that knew nothing of rights or laws, could lift a stone that no 22 wagons, rugged, and four-wheeled, could budge off the ground. The Odyssey, Book 9, 214-215. And he, like the rest of his tribe, or legion, lived in a huge cave, and was not above cannibalism. Lurching up. He lunged out with his hands toward my men and snatching two at once, wrapping them on the ground. He knocked them dead like pups. Their brains gushed out all over, soaking the floor and ripping them limb from limb. To fix his meal, he bolted them down like a mountain lion, left no scraps, devoured entrails, flesh and bones, marrow and all. The Odyssey 9, 288. Now, in contrast, Mark's description of his garrison demoniac cannot compete with Homer's ghastly details for obvious narrative reasons. But like Paul and Mephis, he too lived in the mountains among the caves, knew no laws, and also possessed incredible strength. He could not be bound by chains. Now, Homer and Mark even introduced her monsters in a very similar fashion. Cousin Homer, there in the cave was a monstrous man who spent his nights, who shepherded his flocks alone and afar, and did not mingle with others, but lived apart, obedient to no law. The Odyssey 9, 187. Now when Mark introduces this demoniac, well he manages to mention not once, but three times, that his demons lived in the tombs. Presumably tombs made from caves. Also, similar to the catacombs that the rebel leaders John and Simon exited from when finally coming out and having to face Titus. Come out, come out, wherever you are. Now see, Mark. <laughs> chapter 15, verses 46. And chapter 16, verses 2 through 3. And it reads like this. A man out of the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. Jesus Or use this one, he lived among the tombs, and no one could restrain him any more. Even with a chain, for he had often been restrained with shackles and chains, but the chains were wrenched apart, and the shackles he broke into pieces, and no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs, and on the mountains he was always howling and bruising himself with stones. But when the demoniac saw Jesus, He recognized him, ran to him, and begged for mercy, just like Circe had asked for mercy from Odysseus, as we just talked about. Now Mark's inspiration for naming the demon Legion may owe less to the typical exorcism that Odysseus' famous ruse of calling himself, I am nobody. Because in this next scene, Odysseus had gotten Polyphemus drunk off his ass on wine, then Polyphemus wanted more wine. Sounds a little bit like me, actually, right? In the Odyssey, book 9, pages 354-356, through 356, as well as 363-366, to 366, I quote, he asked me for it again, a second time. Give me it again, with a ready heart, and tell me your name. I spoke to him, and he said, Nobody is my name. Now in Mark, chapter 5, verse 9, then Jesus asked him, What is your name, demon? And he replied, ambiguously, the same as um, Odysseus, Legion is my name, for we are many. Neither Odysseus nor the demoniac would give up their true names. Odysseus' pseudonym indicates non-existence. Whereas on the other hand, the demoniac and Mark story represents a bunch of existences. Both responses leave out the verb and use the words name and my. Also in both stories, the exchange of names gives the hero power over the monster. Though in radically different ways, mind you. By Odysseus naming himself nobody, Well, he outwitted the giant monster, who then could not ask for help from his friends because nobody was doing him any harm. Genius, right? So smart. While our hero Jesus, on the other hand, gained power over the demons by learning their name. Well, of course, that's not entirely true because Mark only gives us legion. And that there were a bunch of them inside the man. Demons, a legion, for we are many, right? So while Odysseus fooled the monster on a semantics level, Jesus demonstrated his power over not just one monster, but a legion of devils, who he cast out into a herd of swine, and then ultimately drowned into the sea. Now what I think or wonder what Mark was doing here, I think he was revealing that Odysseus was representing the old, outdated Greek ways who had to be sly to get things done. While Jesus, on the other hand, who represents the new ways and the only way to survival by avoiding war, could destroy as many monsters as he needed while creating a parallel to both narratives. Odysseus's crew or an army, as well as the Jewish army that perished in the sea, all 2,000 of them. Now when Mark is writing, Odysseus and Jesus usually play similar roles when he casts his characters. But in these instances, these instances of naming, the part of Odysseus this time falls and is played by the demoniac instead of the hero. Now, this is a significant transformation. But Mark does these types of reversal of expectations all through his gospel. And one should understand why. Why does he do it here? because the demons in Mark already know Jesus' identity, as seen in 124. Therefore, when the demoniac approached Jesus, Mark had his demon appropriately name him Jesus, Son of the Most High God. Mark needed the demon to get his name right and get it out there for the reader. A request for Jesus' name should have been ludicrous. Additionally, for this section, Mark seems to have borrowed from the story about Circe, who recognized a stranger by name, because Hermes had predicted his coming. So the passage that follows the naming of Nobody and Legion narrate how the heroes subdue the monster in the story. Because Odysseus, well, he blinded Polyphemus' one eye, his one good eye because he's a fucking Cyclops, right? And when the giant rolled the stone from the opening of his cave to let his sheep out, because he had to go pee or whatever, well, the hero and his crew held on to their undersides, and therefore able to avoid the giant's big-ass searching hands filling all around the cave for the guys. Now, Jesus, on the other hand, well, he simply exercised the legion with a few words and sent them off into 2,000 swine. Mark's choice of animals, as the demon's new but temporary dwelling, is unusual and suggests an imitation of the Circe story with another connection to the Jewish wars. Additionally, the islands of the Cyclops were a home to wild goats innumerable who course over the peaks of the mountains. Unsown and untilled all the days the land is bereft of mankind, but feeds the bleating goats. Odyssey, book 911. Now mark's landscape in his story, too. It was a pasture to an enormous population of animals. Not goats like Homer, but little piggies, or swine like Josephus, or perhaps demons in the wicked generation of Jews that revolted and rebelled against Rome. There on the mountain, a great herd of swine was feeding nearby. Now the Homeric parallel may also explain the improbability of Mark's setting. Because a myriad of wild goats feeding on the mountain of a mythical island presents one's gullibility a lot less than a single herd of 2,000 pigs feeding in open lands on the mountains of Decapolis. It's like Los Angeles. The swine was by design. I would say divine design. One might also agree with Porphyry, the third century philosopher, when he says, what fiction, what nonsense, what a downright folly, when reading Mark's gospel. A throng of 2,000 swine ran into the sea and died by drowning. Found in Apocrychitis 3-4 Now on that note, there is a standard feature of early ancient miracle stories that do include exorcisms. And it is the validation of the miracle, as well as the miracle worker, that's witnessed by nearby bystanders, the town folk, now, typically in mythical tales, including Mark, those who witnessed the event expressed their favorable response. Oh, how great he is! He removed the demon! However, this is not the case with those who witnessed the flight of the damned swine or those who came to the scene to see what had happened. In fact, what they do instead, they ask Jesus to leave. Why would Why would they do that? Mark's narration of their response is unusual and really quite awkward. But it is also the reversal of expectations. Because the reader was expecting Jesus to be, you know, acclaimed. And they're all lifting him up on their hands. And they're like, you know, doing the hand surfing with Jesus all around. And they're like throwing him up in the air. Really excited and shit like that. But because in verse 14, the narrator says that the swineherd ran off and told about the drowning of the swine in the city and the country. But in verse 16, the same audience again, hears the same information. Those who had seen what had happened to the demoniac and to the swine reported it. Even though one can harmonize verses 14 and 16, the second report is clearly redundant. Why? And Matthew's version of the story reads quite acceptably without a parallel to it. But the presence of the redundant double report might be due to a similar passage found in the Odyssey. Because after Odysseus blinded the eye of the Cyclops to one good working eye, Polyphemus called out to his neighbors, therefore involving other shepherds during his plight. Nearby bystanders, town folk, the giant twice indicated that things were not well inside his cave. Now, let's take a look at a couple of comparisons. In the Odyssey, Book 9, pages 399 all the way through 408 say... He shouted to the Cyclops, who dwelt round about him in the caves among the windy heights. And they heard his cry, and came thronging in from every side. And standing around the cave, asked him, What ailed him? Then from inside the cave, the strong Polyphemus answered them, My friends, it is nobody that is slaying me. Now, Interesting, because that was the, the tomfoolery going on there with uh, Odysseus. Now compare that to Mark chapter 5, 14-16. The swine herds ran off and told it in the city and in the country. Then the people came to see what had happened. Those who had seen what had happened to the demoniac and to the swine reported it again. So what do we have here? In both scenarios... Neighbors who are hostile to the hero came to the scene to find out what had happened to the monsters and to the animals. The gigantic shepherd, Polyphemus, called to his neighbors for help and they all gathered around the mouth of the cave, unable to see what had happened on the other side of the massive stone door that was basically blocking the entrance there. They had to ask their giant neighbor friend what was going on. And he told them, Now, in contrast to Mark, the swineherd called for help in the city and in the country, and the locals all came to see what had happened, but they, unlike the Cyclops, could see the man's condition for themselves. That is one of Mark's reversal of expectations right there. It's happened right before our eyes. Because they saw the demoniac sitting there, clothed and also now in his right mind. This Romano-Greek Jew, writing to Paul's congregations, easily could have omitted the repetition of the swineherd's report in the following verse. But his apparent reliance on Polyphemus' famous line, My name is nobody, made this poet give a nod to Homer. Even Mark's description of the exorcised demoniac as being clothed requires the reader to assume the demoniac was previously naked even though this poet never mentions anything about that being the case. But now the reader ends up scratching their head and trying to figure out what that means. Ancient artists commonly depicted Polyphemus as being naked, not just because most mythological males were at least partially nude but also because according to Homer, his cyclops had no crafts and ate only what the earth and the animals naturally provided them. They were, after all, just mythical characters. They were also just known as cavemen. Now, after Odysseus escaped from the monster cyclops, Polyphemus, and after Jesus exercised the monster, Legion, both regrouped with their mates. They got together with their crew, right? Now, both tales include a final verbal exchange between the hero. They both board their ships, and they both have subdued their enemy. Now, in the Odyssey, Polyphemus called out to Odysseus, inviting him to come back to receive some gifts. Hey, I got some stuff for you. You're going to like it. Maybe it's a nice bottle of wine. And fortunately for Odysseus and the reader, both know that it's a trick because he just wanted to destroy the hero. It was a trick. He just wanted Odysseus to turn around and say, hey, I'll take that wine. And then the Cyclops crushes him dead. But in Mark, he changes the reader's expectations by having the demoniac beg to go with Jesus. Please let me go. Let me go with you. That's pretty bad, right? (laughs) But Odysseus then taunted the monster by telling him to go tell the others that it was he, Odysseus, who had blinded his one good eye. Jesus told the demoniac to return home and tell everyone what wonderful things I had done for you. To Mark's readers, it is the difference in the story that shares the real message, isn't it? Now, let's compare the text. In the Odyssey, Book 9, pages 501 through 505, we get this. I called back with another burst of anger. Cyclops, if any man on the face of the earth should ask you who blinded you and shame you so, say Odysseus did, the raider of cities. He gouged out your eye, Laertes' son. Now, for Mark to Christianize this scene... In Mark 5, 19, And Jesus said to them, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and what mercy he has shown you. That line right there was a direct kick to Homer's nutsack. Oof! However, as merciful as Jesus was to the possessed man, remember what he did to the legion of demons? or a small group of army of fighting Jews. Jesus killed the demons by drowning them while the Romans forced the Jews, the Jewish fighters off a cliff into the sea and down unto sharp rocks below. That scene attacks both Greek values as well as directly aimed at John Giscala and a small band of recruited Sicarii. But in this instance Jesus does not silence the demoniac like he does in every other exorcism narrative in the story, but he does tell him to announce what he had done for him in this case, neither Odysseus nor Jesus used the first person singular pronoun "I, but instead a self-referential substitute see Odysseus gouged out your eye instead of saying, "I gouged out your eye." Similarly in Mark, tell him how much the Lord has done for you versus tell him how much I have done for you. Mark here evidently wanted to provide yet another hypertext, another Homeric flag or marker for his audience by imitating the textual grammar. Although with an important twist. Whereas Odysseus told the monster to proclaim that he had harmed him, Jesus told the demoniac to proclaim that he had healed him. Ha-ha! That is the difference that Mark wanted to make. Now what happens during the voyage after the exorcism? Well, in both stories, they end with the hero and the associates sailing off for a brand new adventure. The voyage that follows in the epic was the topic that we covered in the last episode, chapter 8. Sleeping Gods, Boats, and Storms, where Aeolus is the god of wind. But immediately before the story of the Gerasene Demoniac and Mark's tale, one finds Mark's imitation of the Aeolus episode where Jesus is awakening at sea just to calm the storm. Now, in other words, both the Odyssey and Mark contain similar stories immediately, juxtaposed or compared together, though in in an inverted order. Mark just switched them around, put one to the back instead of the front. The following passages that I want to share next will demonstrate remarkably just how dense and in order the parallels are between the story of the Cyclops and the Gerasene. This will cover the Odyssey, Book 9, pages 101 through 565, to Mark's chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. Odysseus and his crew in a convoy arrived at the land of the Cyclops. Jesus and his disciples, with other boats, arrived at the land of the Gerasenes. On the mountains, innumerable goats grazed. On the mountain, two thousand swine grazed. Odysseus and his crew disembarked. Jesus and his disciples disembarked. Odysseus and his crew encountered a savage, lawless giant who lived in a cave. Jesus and his disciples encountered a savage, lawless demoniac, who lived among the caves. The giant asked Odysseus if he came to harm him. The demoniac begged for Jesus to not torture him. The giant asked Odysseus what his name was. Jesus, on the other hand, asked the demoniac, What is your name? Odysseus responded with, Nobody. The demoniac responded with, I am Legion. Odysseus subdued the monster with violence and trickery. Jesus subdued the demoniac with divine power and sent the demons into the nearby swine and then drowned them in the sea. And likewise, Circe the witch turned Odysseus' soldiers into swine. The monster called out to his neighbors for help. The swineherd called out to the neighbors. The Cyclops came to the site asking about Polyphemus' sheep and goats. The Gerasene came to the site to find out what happened to the swine. Polyphemus is typically portrayed in the art as being naked. The demoniac once naked, was now closed. Odysseus's crew re-embarked the ship. Jesus and his disciples re-embarked their ship. Odysseus told the giant to proclaim that he had blinded him, that he was the one that fucked him up. Jesus told the demoniac to proclaim that he was the one who healed him. The giant asked Odysseus, who was about to board his ship, to come on back. I got a present for you. The demoniac asked Jesus, now getting ready to board his ship, if he could go with him. Odysseus refused the request. Jesus, too, refused the request. Odysseus and his crew sailed away. Jesus and his disciples sailed away. Odysseus awoke during the storm at sea, wished he were dead. This narrative is actually in the very next scene after the Cyclops, whereas Jesus awakes during the storm and calmed it in the scene right before the Gerasene demoniac. This is the only scene that Mark moves out of order to send a flag or a myth marker to his reader, that this is indeed the same story, but devaluating the Greek Odysseus. Mark's imitation of this story also retains some of the distinctive traits found in the Odyssey Book 9. Because insofar to this point, both stories place their monsters in caves, with grazing animals on the mountains. Keeping in mind that this author for Mark knew very well it was supposed to be goats. But he systematically, strategically chose swine to make a political statement about some revolutionaries. Rebelling and rioting Jews against their Roman occupiers. And then neighbors arriving at the scene to see what in the hell's going on. Also, in both stories, a character asks for a name from someone who responds, not with a name, but rather one with great significance. Nobody and Legion. Then Homer's implausible conversation between Polyphemus and Odysseus, who is already aboard his ship, finds an analogy in the equally unusual conversation between the now-cured demoniac while on land and Jesus while on his ship, just like Odysseus. Finally, just as Odysseus told Polyphemus to tell the others who it was who blinded him, Jesus tells the Gerasene to go tell the others who it was who healed him. One set of values promotes violence and war, while another one heals and promotes peace. Now these details are not just run-of-the-mill, because their presence in both stories demonstrates Mark's use of mimesis, imitation. Furthermore, Mark's reliance on the epic also explains many of the strange, odd, and peculiar in Mark's story that Christians take as historical facts such as sailing to and from the site, the detailed description of the demoniac, and the hostility of the garrisons towards Jesus, despite the fact that he exercised their local nuisance. Additionally, Mark not only imitates Homer, he emulates. Odysseus overcame Polyphemus by lying about his name. Nobody then blinding the giant and outwitting him. He left the giant far worse off than he found him, blinded and deprived of his sheep. Remarks Jesus, on the other hand, didn't have to resort to deceit or the use of violence, like the type of violence that Vespasian used to punish the Jews. No, Jesus used his divine power. In Mark's narrative here, the victims of violence in the story were demons. Or perhaps, the Jewish revolutionaries that Josephus constantly referred to as wicked. Not the demoniac himself, who Jesus left better off than how he found him originally, clothed and in his right mind. Polymephous' bad news? Say, Odysseus, raider of cities, gouged out your eyes has now become the good news. Go tell everyone how much the Lord has done for you and what mercy He has shown you. This, my friends, has been a Skeptical Ghost Heathen production. currently being recorded.